Welcome back to Leads to Scale, a podcast from Social Media Week. I am your host, Toby Daniels. On this week's episode, we have Jeff Ragavin, Chief Growth Officer and Investor at Social Native, the number one platform for high-performing branded content on demand. During our conversation, we discussed Jeff's early work at Axiom, an acronym, and the leap that he made into the startup world with Mike Lazaro and Buddy Media, the early days of getting Buddy Media off the ground and how they ended up selling to Salesforce for $800 million. And we also discussed his latest venture, Social Native, and how they are enabling brands like Crocs and Intel to deliver UGC-driven campaigns. As always, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Leads to Scale on your favorite podcasting app, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Awesome to be here, Toby. Always a, always a pleasure to talk to you. So um, we always love to give our listeners a little bit of perspective on our guests. Um, for the purposes of this conversation, though, I, I sort of want to go back to the early days of your career. Uh, it, it seems to me like when I, when I look at the sort of the, the arc of your career and, and in particular what you were sort of doing kind of back in the sort of early 2000s, it seems to me that you saw the opportunity of the Internet pretty early, particularly in terms of like um, what it represented for... Uh, for marketing, you saw that pretty early. I'm just sort of curious to know, kind of like, what was your like big insight or perspective on the internet when you first started to think about its application from a professional standpoint? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think what most people don't know is I actually, uh, you know, internet marketing and digital was really never the path for me. I was actually supposed to be a weatherman. Um, <laughs> okay. So. Yeah, it's true. I, you know, I, I graduated undergrad and was, you know, had that whole track of being on TV, doing the weather. And um, I actually jumped into um, digital by working for, you know, a recruiting company, believe it or not, my first year out of college, which was you know back in 2000. And um, it was really about, you know, understanding, you know, what companies were doing, at least from a development perspective, that was kind of my first foray into digital. And then September 11th happened, and I basically got fired, um, which was the, the best thing that could have happened to me, because I basically, you know, went into the world of marketing by chance. Like, I literally was not even looking into that. And I, I got a job at a company called Digital Impact. Uh, which was later, you know, purchased by Axiom. So that was kind of my first foray in, into the world of email marketing. And to me, that was really, you know, the first kind of eye opener because it was during the whole dot com, you know, bubble. Like it was right in the beginning as as companies were start, starting to take off and the internet was taking shape. And you know, for me, the coolest thing. I mean, it's crazy to look back at it now, but email marketing was pretty advanced and amazing for the first time ever, right? I'm sure you remember with things like abandoned shopping cart, you know, you go on a site, you purchase something or you don't purchase it. And then in your email, you actually get that product, right? To me, that was like groundbreaking. Um, so that was really, that was my first step into the world of digital. And from then on, I'm like, wow, this is definitely where the entire world is moving. Um, and then later from email marketing turned into search engine marketing and it was these waves that started happening, right? So first it was email, then it was search. And then, you know, later down the line, it was social. So that was really, you know, to me, that was what really got me into it, which was by chance, which is crazy. And I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to that moment that I did get fired from that first job. How, how soon, how soon into it did you start to kind of get that like entrepreneurial itch because you, you had a couple of stints you had a, like obviously you were axiom for a while then you were acronym um mm -hmm. and then ultimately after whatever it was four or five years you sort of decided to make that leap into the kind of startup world when, when did you first know that that this was something that you wanted to do um and and in particular sort of move out of the kind of slightly more kind of you know s sort of secure and, and cushy kind of like corporate world yeah, you know, I think it was really, you know, it was probably right around 2006 going into 2007 when Facebook kind of announced that, you know, they were opening up their platform to the world, right, beyond universities. And I had a lot of friends who were younger who 
had Facebook and I'm like, oh, you know, it's so silly, you know, this Facebook thing. Um, but then once I opened it up to the world and I, I signed on as a user, I'm like, holy cow, this is, this is groundbreaking. Like, you know, coming from the world of search, you know, you actually had to put in keywords into Google, right, for brands to basically then market to you. And now in this new world of, you know, social platforms, the fact that you can actually create a profile that has your interests, you know, and then, you know, the messaging you can actually be targeted to was, was wild. And I think that was the moment, at least for me, where I'm like, wow, I've got to do something um, in this new wave that has just happened around social. And I really tried very hard to figure out a solution for search. But it was so early in the day of, you know, social, like no one really knew what social was. There was no social media, right? Um, and so for me, I, I, I was just really banging my head. It was the spring of 2007 uh, that, yeah, it was May. It was May of 2007 when Facebook went live to us. And I was like, I got to figure out a solution for all the brands that are buying search. Like, how do we integrate social? And it wasn't until... You know, I actually got an email from a friend that I hadn't seen in years, which, you know, he had went to Northwestern uh, where, you know, my, my best friend today, Mike Lazaro went and uh, was like, hey, you, you've got to, you know, I've got to connect you with this, this guy who went to Northwestern and he's starting this company and he's looking for someone to really run the business side. And it was called Buddy Media. And um he had never met Mike. I had never met Mike. Like we had never been friends. And, um, you know, lo and behold, we, we were introduced and, you know, the magic happened at that moment. And I decided, you know what, I got to leave the, the world of search and start this, you know, revolution around social. I mean, you guys were, you guys were like the pioneers in many ways of building um, applications and experiences on the Facebook platform, particularly for brands, providing new and alternative ways for brands to be able to engage with consumers through social. But, but you know, I imagine it took time, particularly in terms of like building the the Buddy Media product to get to that point. What what was the what was the first idea that you guys sort of sat around a table and and started to think about in terms of what the 1.0 version of Buddy Media would look like? Yeah, that's a really great question because we had so many versions of, of what we were doing. Um, you know, in the very, very early days of just launching the company, we really didn't, I mean, we really didn't know what we were doing. We had purchased a, um, you know, a, a platform type of app system through uh, this guy um, who created almost like a loyalty um, network within Facebook where you could play games and earn credits that was called uh, Acebucks. And so we basically integrated Acebucks into, you know, branded apps and games. And, you know, we were trying to really create this uh, loyalty platform within Facebook. That was really Buddy Media 1.0. And it was, it was short-lived. You know, it, we really only did that for probably less than a year. Um, but it did get us, you know, into the space. You know, we started beating a lot of app developers. Um, we were creating a network of people. We were understanding what they were engaging with, you know, and then we slowly kind of moved into just branded apps, right? And we actually coined the term back in the day um, called advertising. So we, we kind of had this notion or this hunch, hey, what if we can create games that were super fun, but they were really developed by brands and we were to drive people into those experiences um, you know, from an engagement perspective. And we did a ton of stuff from, you know, if I remember we did, you know, like FedEx launch a package where it was all about, if you remember people used to send e-greetings, do you remember those days? Of course. Right. You'd send a birthday card or get well, or no one does that anymore. But, um, there was this, uh, application that FedEx actually worked with on their agency where you could basically pull this rubber band back in this package and launch it to your friends. And we created this whole experience within Facebook and it was, you know, virtual gifts and birthday cards and, you know, all this silly stuff, but it was, it was pretty amazing. Um, you know, we did other stuff like, you know, we worked with InStyle and it's probably still going around today, but you could change your 
um, hair. It was called like the Hollywood uh, hair makeover tool. And we kind of brought that to the world of Facebook. And we did all these really fun, super engaging, you know, app experiences, which later on, again, were like, this is not sticky enough, right? There needs to be more. And uh, we later then really, we kind of pivoted a little bit out of the app world and we built a, you know, a content management tool for Facebook where brands could literally launch pages and talk to their customers. And um, that was really the, uh, you know, we probably pivoted a few other times in between there, but that was really what put us on the map. Well, right? yeah, that, 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 that I think is a really interesting time. I mean, it's pivotal. Um, it's a pivotal time for the industry as well as obviously for Buddy Media in the sense that there was, I think, a, a big insight in regards to kind of like where the sort of like apps on Facebook landscape was sort of like heading or at least how it was shifting. So what, what was the like internally at Buddy Media, like what was the insight that really kind of motivated you guys to think about more, think about like content management, think about publishing, think about like providing more of like a dashboard and the tools for brands to be able to like execute and manage campaigns? Well, you know, it started with Facebook, of course, announcing, you know, literally like, hey, you could now do more with branded pages, right? You can now launch a tab. And within that tab, you can create an entire experience. You know, if you remember, you know, back in 2008, 2009, you know, major companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi and, you know, the big beverages, you know, companies, they were literally like, we don't need to do websites anymore. Like their commercials were driving to facebook.com slash Pepsi. And so we saw that like, holy cow, this is a huge shift. You know, we came out with this huge announcement that we now have a content management system. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember that moment that we did some press around it and our chief product officer came up and said, you know, we do. Mike's like, yeah, you're, you're going to build it right now. Uh, you know, we had pieces of it, but we didn't have a full CMS at the time. And, you know, we had no idea that it would later make our entire business, you know, all the way down to, you know, an eventual major acquisition. Right. Because like, you know, in, in many ways, Buddy Media was not single handedly, but but largely responsible for like building um the presence on facebook for a number of like major brands you know literally taking them to zero to in some cases like tens of millions of fans and that of course you know was just like a really interesting period for the industry because um you know everyone was getting a little bit drunk on this idea that you could kind of reach and engage like millions of people at a fraction of a cost um, you know, if you were to compare it to kind of like traditional or like, you know, t TV advertising. But of course, you know, that was a relatively short lived experience, um, as is often the case, it seems in this industry, Facebook, you know, then, you know, subsequently made um, what turns out to be a, a pretty uh, savvy decision to um, to restrict access to these audiences by obviously encouraging brands to begin to invest in in paid social to talk about that pivotal moment is as well because i think it it, it sort of is a, a good lead in to then the the ultimate kind of um story in, in regards to like that how you were then you know acquired by salesforce yeah i mean that was i would say that was also a very painful time you know facebook would change the platform every quarter they would break our system every tuesday um with releases and i think as a startup that's that's a very difficult um hurdle that you have to get through you build an entire system on top of someone else's system and you're at the mercy of them whenever they change. And we, we constantly were building and rebuilding and patching. And, you know, it was even for the brands, the brands are like, what's going on here? And they would turn to us because we had the information. Um, you know, we built the entire platform around experiences for brands, not just to communicate with their customers, but really provide these provocative, engaging, website-like experiences, um, you know, within the environment. And then Facebook went ahead and actually said, you know what, tabs are going away. You can't really do that anymore and everything's gonna now take place in the feed. So you could imagine after working with, you know, eight of the 10, you know, top global brands, hundreds of brands across the world, you now have to change your whole system again. And that's, that's something that, you know, will make anybody mad, right? Like mad in the brain, not mad or angry, or mad or angry too. So, you know, it was around that moment too, we were, we were just about to go through, you know, the acquisition with Salesforce, but we also had a number of companies that were looking into us as well. Like, 
everyone was trying to really figure out the data piece, right? So if you remember, people would get very upset with an airline or, or a CPG brand that they might have purchased and they'd go to Twitter, right? And they would basically yell at the brand and you know, it was up to the brand managers to say, hey, we need a presence, we need people, customer service, you know, talking to people on Twitter, we need people talking to people on our Facebook pages. And that's where then you started to see a really big shift into data, right? And so for a company like Salesforce, who has massive databases from all of the customer data of all the companies that they work with, imagine a world where you could actually merge social data with real customer data so that you can get smarter on the customer. And there was a big gap in the world when someone would go to complain on Twitter that they had a terrible experience on American Airlines or United Airlines or Delta or whatever it might be. And then Delta or American calls the customer the next day around something, but has no idea about what happened, right? right? So imagine that you could now merge those two pieces in one place. And I think that's really where the beauty of you know, where Mark Benioff saw this incredible opportunity, you know, to buy a few companies in social who were leading the charge around listening and publishing, you know, obviously Buddy Media and Radiant 6 were a natural fit together and rebuild that into the, the, the Salesforce world, which is now the marketing cloud. So let's, let's, let's talk about that, that period, because it, it definitely will be helpful when we kind of sort of you know bring our audience kind of like up to speed into the presence and talk about some of the things that you're working on right now but i just want to kind of dig in a little bit because you know obviously salesforce bought buddy media for 800 million as you say it was acquiring a number of companies in the social space during that period and and i think it's it's no it's no secret that they paid a premium and, or, and were paying a premium for a lot of the companies that they were acquiring at that time i mean you know just four or five, however many years prior to that, Jeff, you, you know, you were working in search engine marketing or you were just making your foray into kind of this entrepreneurial startup world. How did it feel for you, for, 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 for Mike and, and for Cass, you know, at that time after all these years of building this thing, all these um, challenges that you've overcome, these hurdles that you've had to, to, to get over, um, how did it feel, you know, to, to be in a position where your company, the thing that you had been building had been acquired by a major company for a fairly significant amount of money uh it was it was incredible it was surreal it was life-changing for sure i think at the same time it, it also for me it was a an experience that was so different right being on you know on the other side of a major corporate entity with thousands and thousands of people around the world is a very different ballgame from you know creating a startup and being really nimble and being able to to shift gears really fast being at a big company like salesforce was you know both incredible and also daunting at the same time i think for me as a person like i love to build i love the win i love the feeling of really working with a team and you know being able to celebrate every single win and while I'm not saying you don't get that at a big corporate company, but it becomes less, um, it, it feels, you know, you feel like you're kind of part of a giant, uh, you know, you're a cog, right? Totally. Well, and part, part of what motivates you as an entrepreneur is feeling uncomfortable and, 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 and living constantly every single day with just fear that this whole thing might come crashing down around you. And to a certain extent, you, that gets taken away from you in a, in a situation where you get acquired, right? Yeah, and I think that's um, that's a really strange phenomenon. I think a lot of uh, you know entrepreneurs and a lot of founders feel the very same uh, feeling of once their baby gets bought and then it gets turned into an adult, and you know things start to level out, right? And it's like, where do you fit? Where is your place? And um, I think there's there's many books that can be written on this, and you know, for a moment in time, I actually thought about writing a book myself, but it is a very interesting and psychological transition that many entrepreneurs go through. And I think for us, you know, being at Salesforce is so incredible. You know, it really was life changing and, you know, it made, and it was an amazing experience. But at the same time, I think we never really got to truly celebrate the win of being acquired because we were thrown right into it and had to rebuild 
because the, the industry had changed so much that, you know, the product that we went to market with was no longer viable. And I think for me in particular, like my, I'd say my core focus, especially building the company was really based on relationships with, you know, building clients from very small programs to massive, huge deals over many years and seeing some of those deals actually go away uh, was tough, but it had to happen because we needed to reinvent ourselves. But there were other companies that were kind of in the rear view mirror, you know, that were later stage startups that were able to be super nimble and change much more quickly than we were able to. Now you fast forward, obviously many years now we're talking, you know, it's 2019. We sold the company in 2012, you know, the marketing cloud now is an, it's an amazing uh, platform and it's an amazing product, but it took many years to get there. Right. And so there would be a little bit of pain to get there with, you know, some churn and, you know, losing clients and, and all of that uh, stuff is very hard. It's very hard to do that. So, you know, uh, I think you stayed at Salesforce for a couple of years and then obviously, you know, made the decision to leave. Uh, and you, you can go into as much detail as you want about that. But I'm more interested to sort of understand, like, where was your head at, at the point at which you were looking to leave? I mean, you know, look. The world was your oyster in many ways. You could you could pretty much pick and choose what you could do next. Like, where was your head at? What were some of the things that you were thinking about at that time? Yeah, I was I was confused. I was probably the most confused I'd ever been in my career. Actually, at that moment of you know after leaving, I'm like, actually at first I was elated. I'm like, this is amazing. I could do anything I want with no real. There, nothing was holding me back, right? For for the first time in my life, I actually, you know, had all the things that I needed to do whatever I needed to do. And that could be nothing right, at the moment. Uh, but it's very difficult for me to sit down and do nothing. Like, I'm, I, I like building. I like being busy. I feel like you have to have a purpose, whatever it is. And, you know, I had many ideas literally flowing into my head. Every day was a new idea. Every week was a new company. And I think I spent... I don't know, maybe a couple of months being almost manic. What am I going to do next? What am I going to build next? What, what is it? And I was trying to really merge what I love to do in life, which is fishing and cooking and entertaining. And then what I'm really good at, which is, you know, building and digital and relationships. And I was, I was literally like, well, what do I do with that? And, um, you know, it, it took me a couple of months, but I basically said, you know what? I, I really don't know what I'm going to do and that's okay. But what I think as in the meantime is I'm going to put some money aside as a kind of my own little, you know, fund, if you will. And I'm going to invest in interesting companies and see where it takes me. And, you know, that was probably the smartest move I could have done because, you know, I got exposed to a lot of companies uh, that were doing some really cool stuff in this, you know, new wave of, you know, digital and marketing. And it, it, it didn't just give me the ability to stay in, in the digital world. Like I invested in like, you know, airports and food and health and fitness. So I was also expanding, you know, my knowledge base. And, you know, that was, that was really the next step for me. And some of the companies that I invested in, you know, really wanted me to come on board and, uh, you know, help them build and scale. But I just was not in that mindset. And, you know, I actually launched a dinner series called the Digital Fork, which is still going on today, which is uh, really it was combining my passion of food and relationships where I was hosting them at like the best restaurants across the country and inviting CMOs to come to the dinner. And for me, it was about picking their brains of what was important. Where should I be investing? Right. What, what were they you know, complaining about when it came to products and solutions, because as, as I'm now out of the business, I need to know what marketers want. And so this dinner series was really as an effort for me to learn from them and also enjoy a good meal with good people. Um, you know, fast forward six or seven months from there, Social Native, which was one of the companies I had invested in, you know, I had gotten to be pretty close with the CEO, this guy, David Shadpour, who, who started the business and he had a really good vision. And it was, uh, you know, it's all around content. And for me, I'm like, wow, I wish we had this when we were building Buddy Media because everybody would come to us and they'd say, hey, can you guys literally create the content that we're plugging into, you know, 
our templates on Facebook and our pages. And we're like, we're not an agency, right? We are a technology company. We're the plumbing, if you will. And so the idea around Social Native was to create content at scale through all of the people around the world, almost like Uber for content, right? And so I love the idea and obviously invested it. And David, you know, convinced me to <clears throat> come on board and literally full-time and help him build and scale the company. And that was three and a half years ago. And uh, I didn't, I had no idea that I was going to do that. It was not in the cards, but I, I did. And I'm super happy. And I feel it's a little deja vu right. all over again. <laughs> you, well, know? You, you clearly just can't help yourself. And that's, that's great. I think you, you, you can officially wear the serial entrepreneur badge with honor i think if if you if you find yourself in a situation like this and uh you you literally just could not help yourself in in terms of jumping back in Let, let's um let's help our listeners really understand social native then let, let, let's let's lift the hood a little bit and describe the platform the product and the service that you provide to brands today yeah so basically you know it, it's a very simple platform at the end of the day we we built an entire um platform that essentially connects the world of creators with brand marketers and even agency folks as well. And, you know, the way that it works is basically every single aspect of content that you might need, whether it's video or whether it's images, um, can be created with a touch of a button. So you could go in and say, hey, I need content from you know, women who are 18 to 40, who live in New York, who are interested in yoga, and I want to do, I need content around a new product for Lululemon, right? Because brands need a lot of content, not just for social, but for paid ads. And so now we live in this world where we're just bombarded with messages all day long across the feed. And, um, you know, now you can actually create very customized content for every need. And so that's kind of the gist of it. Like I said, Uber for content, content at scale, a fraction of the cost of what you would pay with, you know, a creative shop or an agency. And, um, you know, it's been super fun. Like we don't own any equipment. We don't have any production studios. We don't have any cameras. I don't even think we own a camera aside from our phone and our business. Um, but we have the people that do it. Right. And so it's really capitalizing on the gig economy and, uh, it's, it's been really fun. We interrupt this week's episode of Leads to Scale to share an update in regards to our forthcoming conference in London. The 10th annual edition of Social Media Week London, Europe's premier conference for media and marketing professionals, is taking place at the QE2 Conference Center in Westminster between October 31st and November 1st. This year's event will continue the 2019 global theme stories with great influence comes great responsibility a conversation that will explore how social media has become the most influential story platform in the world that has the power to both unite and divide us check out our first wave of speakers and secure your pass by visiting socialmediaweek.org forward slash london and don't forget to use the code leads number two scale at the checkout to save an additional 10% off your pass. All right, let's get back to the show. Well, I, want, I want you to talk about a specific campaign. So I was d doing a little bit of research and I came across the, a fairly recent campaign that you guys did with Crocs. A, deep, a deeply uncool brand that has like made this sort of foray into like you know, uh, 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 sort of into the UGC space, but has come out with something that, that has really resonated. It's really captured the kind of imagination, I think, of a lot of the creators on your platform, as well as being something that has really resonated with consumers as well. So I'd love for you to, I would love for you to talk about that, but I want to sort of like frame this a little bit because, um, you know, UGC has been around for, for, you know, a decade plus, as, as long as really social media has been around. I mean, like the, the sort of the early promise of social media was this idea that like, you know, brands could sort of um, solicit content from their consumers as a way of creating deeper levels of engagement. So UGC is not new. Um, but what we're seeing today is, I think, a massive uptick in terms of the number of brands that are sort of like making this foray into the space. And, 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 and seemingly having a lot more sort of success than, than perhaps they, they did some, some years ago when they first sort of started to experiment. So talk about, give us a specific campaign example 
um, and talk about Crocs, if you don't mind, but also sort of talk about why why you see the landscape shifting or why is it different today than it was, you know, um, previously? Yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I think one of the largest shifts around UGC, and again, you're right, it, it's not new. It's It's been around. Like, people have been creating content now for, you know, 10 years uh, when it comes to social. I think where we're really starting to see a big shift is because we are literally addicted to our phones, all of us, it's a problem. You know, we're going through Instagram, we're looking at our feeds, we're sharing our family, our kids, you know, our hobbies, our likes, our food, all that stuff. We have become very, um, we, we become familiar with what we know. And when we see it, let's just say a brand that is actually producing something that is so perfect looking in our feed, it sticks out like a sore thumb. And we don't even look at it, we scroll right, right past it super fast. And so brands are starting to say, okay, obviously we need to capture the attention of consumers when they're on their devices. And they seem to engage and relate to, you know, user-generated content that they see all over the place, especially on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and even Twitter. So I think UGC has really catapulted to this new level of, hey, we don't want something that's too stylized. Or we don't want something that looks too perfect. We want it to look like it came from a customer. Or we want it to look like it's real and it's super authentic and all of those things. And brands are starting to say, okay, we need to rethink you know, how we develop content because the shiny, beautiful stuff that once worked doesn't work anymore. So I think that's been one of the reasons that we've seen a lot of brands started to shift to UGC. And naturally, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of people in our platform that create really beautiful UGC, right? So it's, it takes it one step further where it's not perfect. It's not something that you would get in a production studio or a very, very, you know, high-end agency, but it works and it's beautiful and it's premium looking. So, you know, I think, you know, you, you, you pulled up, you know, Crocs for as a specific example. And, you know, they're a, a really interesting customer because, yeah, you know, you think about Crocs and you're like, oh, that's, that's not really all that cool, right? And what they've done is they've tapped into, you know, I think they worked with something like 200 creators in the social native platform. And they generated hundreds of videos and images that they not only used across you know, social and their sites, but they wanted people to share them as well. So they're basically using the content that was created through the customers to really change the mindset that, you know, Crocs are not just one certain style. There's many different styles that are beautiful. And they had, you know, a ton of engagement. I think they, they had, I don't know what the actual numbers were, but it was probably just south of, you know, I don't know, a hundred, I don't know, a million engagements, something like that, um, through customers, right? So between all of the comments and the likes and all of that stuff and a very high engagement rate. So it was a really great program. And they also created videos with all of the content that they produced too. And I think they're up for an award uh, coming up with Digiday. So, you know, they're definitely doing something right. And a lot of brands are starting to follow suit with this, hey, let's create really great content that not only our customers are, are sharing, but we're sharing and we're taking that content and we're being able to target new customers with content that fits who they are, right? Not just here are the 10 assets blasted out through paid. Here are a hundred assets where you could target very specific groups of people, interests, lifestyle, all that stuff. I think that's what's really interesting about it is this like this, how do you build bridges between your most passionately engaged um, customers and and new audiences through social media. And these UGC campaigns seem to be just a great vehicle for that. Yeah, I mean, Toby, think about it, right? Like, I love to fish, right? I am, it's one of my, you know, my biggest passions, especially in the summer, going out on the boat, bringing people on the boat, fishing. It's, I love it. It's, you know, not only provides food, but it also provides sport and fun. And, you know, I was just thinking about an example of a brand, you know, if they were to create content, you know, they knew that I was a fisherman, let's just say, right? Because you have the data available at your fingertips, especially with Facebook. Um, if they were creating content that was geared towards me, that actually has fishing content in it, right? Amongst other things that I love, I'm going to see it, right? Like if Coca-Cola created an ad 
where there's some guy on a boat fishing, let's just say he's catching a big striped bass and there's a bottle of Coke, can of Coke in the background, I'm 100% gonna see that in my feed and stop for a moment. But if it's just a generic, like someone drinking a Coke on the street, I will most likely not even see it. So if we can create content that is geared towards all of our customers in many different ways, right? People who love to fish, people who have dogs, moms, dads, people who love cars, right? People who love yoga. We take the marketing to the next level. We have the data. Why not capitalize on that? So many people say to me every single day, like, hey, Jeff, I actually would love to get ads that are, you know, really targeted to me for me, right? Because I get so much crap all day long on stuff that I would never purchase. And so we have the tools today to do that. But I think marketers are not there yet, right? There's too many layers. There's an agency, there's a production company, there's this person, there's that person, there's a social agency. And people are just, you know, everyone holds on to their products and doesn't share. I think we need to live in a world where everyone works together and makes the advertising better because we have to figure out how do we make advertising not suck, right? That's the key. That That's actually like a, a great segue uh, into um, a part of the conversation I was actually going to leave until the end, but I want to get to it right now because I think it's just like a really a, a great sort of jumping off point. So um, you know, we're, we're super excited to be partnering with Social Native for the first time this year and, and especially excited that you, Jeff, will be speaking at our New York conference coming up in just a few weeks' time. Um, and and I think that the, the talk that you're going to give is, is going to really touch on some of the things that you just mentioned, in particular in terms of like how you see the kind of like the marketing landscape shifting and in particular, like what what you see as the um, biggest challenge and also potential opportunity for agencies in the space, because I think you can see. Um, you know, uh, an, an, an amount of disruption that is, is currently happening or that will happen in the future. Can you sort of talk a little bit about some of the, the things that you'll touch on in your talk during, uh, during the New York conference? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the, you know, one of the, one of the main things that, you know, I'd like to cover is really understanding how to participate in the shift, both from a, you know, a brand perspective and an agency perspective. Right, because agencies are now starting to even see the UGC push as a, you know, a big foray into how they could win business. Right, so thinking about, you know, one, how to work with the right platforms. Right, how to create the right type of content. Um, I think the influencer marketing space is super crowded, and there's a lot wrong with it. You have fraud that's going on. You have inflated, you know, engagement rates and followers and all of that. That's a whole piece of the pie that you have to figure out. You know, obviously at Social Native, we're doing a ton of things around that. We have, you know, brand index scores now so that we have, you know, creators who, if they are sharing content, it's it's real, it's authentic, it's not bought. Um, you know, we live in a really strange time right now. Like the last few years, especially with, you know, politics and fake news and Facebook and data, you know, it's it's important that everybody understand how to participate in this new world of UGC. So... You know, I think that's definitely something that I would like to, you know, talk about and, you know, how to really focus on the right people to create the right content for you and not just some random, hey, I'm an influencer. I have 100,000 followers, right? Um, I, I don't want to see that, that world, you know, turn into, well, everyone is just basically holding out a brand, you know, product on their Instagram and that's, they're doing it to get paid, right? We have to, we have to be smart. We have to have people who are creating content around, what they're experts in or what people follow them for, right? Like a food blogger, you know, or someone like me. I, I have an Instagram account that's only my fishing stuff, right? You should check it out, Toby. It's Salt Life NY. And every single you know, piece of content on there is fishing or for boating. It'd be an amazing opportunity for me to represent a company like Penn Reels, right? Because my followers know that I'm into fishing. And if I have a really good product that I want to talk about, that's real. But a, re a regular random person who just has a lot of followers and they just have like, you know, 150 brand posts on there, that's not real. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think we have to really understand the whole landscape and what works, what doesn't work, and what to watch out for. I mean, you, you've built, you know, um, and scaled multiple businesses in the social media marketing space. And, and obviously, you know, through your dinner series, Digital Fork, 
you know, you're tapping into the minds of, of some of the most senior people kind of in the industry today. What, what are some of your other observations that you are sort of thinking about or, or that you think are, you know, salient and important to, to share with the kind of broader industry? Yeah, you know, I think that there is, you know, for one, tying back to content, there's a lot of brands that are starting to do things that are totally something that you would have never seen them do 10 years ago. So brands are actually tapping into their customers to create content and taking that content and actually putting it on print and packaging and billboards, like out of home, you know, stuff that is not digital, right? And I think that is a, that's really exciting, right? Because now you actually have people, people are almost, you know, helping brands take their business to the next level. You know, I think we have, we have such a shift happening right now, even with television, right? Netflix and Hulu and advanced, you know, interfaces on TV that pull in, you know, digital and social content as well, right? So there's this, all this like, <clears throat> crazy merging that's happening where it's not just one channel anymore, right? It's it's everything kind of coming in as this hybrid new realm. Like, I don't even know how to operate a TV anymore. I, I have the Samsung, uh, you know, the the frame TV. And I'm just like, how do, how do I work this thing? I just want Netflix, right? That's all I want. And Hulu. And um, I think that's going to be, a, I would say, at least, you know, going into the next few years, that's probably going to be the biggest change that we experience too with you know home entertainment and our computers like everything's starting to talk to each other right definitely that that's a nice tv by the way i i've uh, i was looking at it the other day a friend of mine has it in his apartment and he has it just like um it just looks like a piece of art basically when it when it's not functioning as a tv it's beautiful yeah yeah people don't know that it's art i'm like i mean they don't know it's a tv they're like oh that piece is beautiful and i'm like that's that's the tv right really does look like art it's yeah. amazing it's, it's so cool um, so so you you just we just talked about channels and i want to spend a bit of time talking about that so I, I have this debate all the time and i don't particularly have like a great answer for this question but i'm always just curious to hear other people's perspectives do you see social as a channel you know, like sem tv at a home etc or, or, or do you think it kind of represents something different just in regards to kind of like where it fits into kind of like the broader marketing landscape or, or e ecosystem yeah, I mean, I, I think it is still a channel, right? You know, you still have, I mean, you have many channels, right? If you think about social in particular, you've got, you know, you still have Facebook, you have Instagram, you have Twitter, you have Snapchat, right? Um, you now have TikTok, right? It's like all of these are still, you know, it's still social as a channel. You know, I do think that it bleeds into other areas, but it's still a core focus. Um, you know, and you still need partners to help you manage your channels, right? Both messaging, right? You need partners like social native to help you with the content that you're going to inject into the channels. And, you know, you're still doing paid, you know, you have that marketing partner too, where you're doing paid across these, you know, social channels, but it, it really has expanded into layers, right? At one point in time, in the beginning, it was really just, Hey, you know, I need to be on there and I need some content. Now it's like, content, it's paid, it's communications, it's strategy, it's, you know, it's just crazy how many, like, it's a tree that has created all of these branches, right? So it's almost taken on its own, uh, it's, it's an animal, so to speak. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good way of, I think that's a good way of describing it. And like the, you know, because in a way, it's, it's not, it's a channel. And it's also like the connective tissue that sort of brings all of these other different channels together but the tree analogy is a good one because i think like if social is the tree then like many ways like all of the branches um which are an extension of the tree are also represented by all of the various other different kind of marketing channels that you have at your disposal w would you agree with that absolutely and you know even for the longest time like we have this channel called social but we couldn't really attribute specific sales, so to speak. I mean, we could, but it's hard. And now it's like you have Instagram rolling out e-commerce, right? You could buy right there. So I think there's there's even another, you know, realm of changes that are taking place today, you know, as of last week, where, you know, instead of driving someone out, you know, of the experience to purchase, you could now keep them there, let them go along their way and buy something else again, right? 
and it's crazy that it's taken us this many years for, you know, even Instagram to launch that. And it'll be interesting to see how much it actually disrupts the platform, right? Are people going to flee the platform because they're now getting sold to everywhere, right? So I think there could potentially be another shift that's taking place. I think so, definitely. So you and I have been, we've been around, <laughs> we've been around the block. We've been around for uh, a similar amount of time in, in terms of like you know, the two decades or so that we've been doing what we do in this space. And, and it seems to me that you, as much as I am just as like jazzed and super excited and kind of like motivated to be in this space right now, but at the same time, we are at a little bit of an inflection point, right? Facebook, Google, and many of the tech companies are like under fire due to issues to do with like data privacy and issues to do with um, uh, a misalignment between their business models and the interests of the people that are using their platforms. And it's just took a really interesting time. So what, what are your, mm -hmm. some of your thoughts on this? Like, what do you think the big tech platforms need to do um, to kind of right the ship and, and, and also regain not just consumers' trust, but regain the trust of, of a lot of the kind of the key stakeholders in the business? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think, that, you know, we, the last few years, like I said, you know, we, there's been so much that has been exposed, you know, most recently, you know, there was news in the last week too, of like, you know, millions and millions of passwords were exposed as well. And, you know, I think for Facebook in particular, that's, that's pretty scary. Um, you know, I, I definitely have seen a lot of people who have had it, right? They're like, okay, I'm off. Like, there's just too many um, issues with breach and data and obviously even with the election, right? And so we, we do have to be better. The platforms have to be better. You know, there is obviously, you know, legislation that's, you know, going into effect that's going to, you know, help protect data. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I I've seen this now literally for the last 10 years plus, like especially the giants out there that have changed their platform over and over, right? If you build it, the users will come, the users will come, then we'll change it, right? Then bring the brands, then we'll change it again. And it's like this, it's constantly, it's like history keeps repeating itself, right? It doesn't matter what platform it is, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Google, you know, things change and the initial kind of like, let's be free and have everyone connected in this perfect world takes aim at, okay, we're now a business and we're a public company and it's all about revenue, right? And those don't really work well together. So, you know, quite frankly, I think, you know, what, what I think these platforms really need to do is they really need to level up and, you know, do better as far as their protection and their data policies. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, it's a big question mark, to be quite frank with you. I don't know, right? There's been so many issues. And it is so many issues ranging from very simple things to really scary breaches yeah. of data and, and almost cost an election, right? Or did cost an election. So it's, you know, this is not the playground that we were playing in, you know, 10 years ago. This is a, this is a whole new ball game. Someone someone peed in the sandpit. We got we to gotta figure out how to clean that pee. <laughs> exactly, exactly. There's no easy or straightforward solution for getting pee out of a sandpit. We definitely know that. Um, all right, so so let, let's we have to draw the conversation to a close. But I want to talk about the future. Um, and and I, I, I want you to think about like not your core business and things that you're necessarily focused on. You know, in in terms of the day to day. But like, what are some of the things that you're really excited about in terms of the future? And, and, and obviously, I recognize that, you know, it's springtime, summer's going to be upon us fairly soon, and you're going to be mostly just thinking about getting out in your boat and going fishing. But let's maybe look a little bit further into the future and think about some of the things that you're like really excited about. Yeah, I mean, I think we've already started to see a little bit of this already. I think especially along the side of our business, you know, you know, artificial intelligence has kind of been this buzzword that everyone's been using. Hey, we use AI. Hey, we use Watson, which we do. What else does as well? You know, but I think, you know, AI in the sense of really, truly understanding, like, what content is, like, what works? How do we actually, like, target and market things based on, you know, what the actual technology sees instead of the human element, right? And we're doing so many interesting things right now around, 
hey, we don't really know what content is going to work, so we need to test lots of different variations. And then taking those variations of content and doing test um, you know, analysis of content that might have been there versus the new content, and then going and changing these briefs to create the new content that works, but it's very manual, right? You have It's a lot of like introspection into the data, looking at, is it color? Is it an object? Is it a dog? Like what made people engage with it, right? And so using technology to really understand, you know, I don't know, object identification and, and changing that query in the brief without a human doing it, like that to me is like, wow, that's the perfect product in our solution, right? And we're, we are working towards that right now, but it's, it's, it's big. Like there's a lot of tech that has to go into that. Um, you know, and as humans, like we have less errors than technology that is not fully baked, right? Obviously technology, when it has everything in it, and it can predict and process and scale, that's something that is gonna be perfect. But until we have all of those, certainly those holes plugged in with those pieces of AI, you still have to have humans involved. So I think for us, like content being able to be changed based on engagement automatically is game changing. Like faster optimization, less you know waste of money. Like that to me is truly like, that's the next level. I'm waiting for it. It's a great way to end. Great way to end the conversation. I think the, you know. I think that the 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 shifts that we're seeing right now, particularly in terms of the role of AI in in visual recognition and how that opens up just an entirely new landscape of opportunities to sort of think about the role of visual in communications and how it can play an even bigger role uh, in terms of how we think about content marketing in the future. It's, it's a super exciting space to be in. By the way, even security, even your car, even hotels, like everything can be based on facial recognition. Everything can be based on like, you know, I think, uh, was, it, was it JetBlue? Yeah, I think I saw this recently. JetBlue had actually rolled out like, instead of giving your ticket, it literally scans your face when you get on the plane. That's crazy, but it, it, you know, it's great. It's like, Hey, you don't have to print out a ticket. You just check in and get on the plane. <laughs> That's awesome. Amazing. Good stuff. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. A super awesome conversation. Really enjoyed our chat. So thanks again. Super fun. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to leads to scale, a podcast from social media week. Leads to Scale is edited and produced by Al Manorino. For the latest news and insights, or to learn more information about how to get involved with future Social Media Week events, please visit socialmediaweek.org.